The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Embracing what makes us unique creates more possibilities for all. Learn more at usbank.com diversity. U.S. Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Donate to the forum. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Thank you for joining us today for how to be a pro-troublemaker, what it takes to actually get people to change with Stephanie Crevins of Stephanie Crevins Consulting. Have you ever wondered why won't others get behind your DEI initiatives? As a professional in this leadership area, you know there are many factors influencing both corporate and personal support. Using contemporary and classic research, this podcast uncovers the unconscious reasons individuals don't change, how to expose them, and then make it more likely that whole teams will become inclusive. It also describes how and why you can be a pro-troublemaker those individuals who are optimistic, curious, and growth-oriented. This episode has time built in for your for you to answer reflection questions throughout the podcast. If you're able, grab a pen and notebook to capture your answers and reflections. In this podcast, you'll learn how to be a positive deviant, not the devil's advocate, identify one's own need and speed for change, and uncover three unconscious limitations to change and how you can influence them. Stephanie Cravens focuses her coaching and training on workplace cultures that love their people and want them to stay and take ownership of their results. Her clients are typically leaders and teams struggling with conflict and stalled growth and want to innovate and grow again. Using solution-focused coaching methods, both individuals and groups find new solutions to old problems, work collaboratively, and design processes that skyrocket their success. Hello, friends. This is Stephanie Crevins, and I am so pleased to be with you today on the Forums podcast to share with you how to be a pro troublemaker and to share with you my tips on what it actually takes to get people to change. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I feel like I have been training for this my entire life, and I'll share a bit more about myself here in a minute, but I've made some guesses, maybe assumptions as to why you're listening in today, and I'd love to share those with you as I believe they set the context for what I've prepared uh, by way of content for you. So as a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, or someone focused deeply on this work, my guess is that you're trying to challenge the way things are done around here. You're trying to challenge the business status quo, especially when it comes to inclusion, and you might be feeling like you're getting more resentment than change. You feel that emotional backlash. You feel when people don't want to work with you and you're not sure why, right? Like, what am I doing? I'm here to 
bring something really awesome to my organization and people are resisting it. What's going on there? Or maybe you want to better understand why those around you aren't willing to change. They say they want to change. They say that they see your perspective, but they're not actually changing your behavior. So what else can you do? What tools can you add to your toolbox to make you a more effective DEI professional that makes it more likely to integrate the beautiful values of inclusion into your organization. That's what I want to share with you today is this notion of being a pro troublemaker, this mindset that I think will make you even more effective. Now I've made this to be interactive for you. So I would encourage you get a, a pen or something to write with and some note paper in front of you, because I'm going to ask you some questions along the way, some reflection questions, some uh, self-awareness questions that I hope will add to your learning. Um, and of course, if you're driving, please don't do that, but take time to come back and answer these questions for yourself uh, when you have a moment. I think you'll get more out of it by investing a little bit of time in reflecting and answering these questions and figuring out ways for you to move forward. Before we get into the content, I'd love to share with you uh, beyond my formal bio, my formal background why I'm here with you today. I am not a DEI professional, full disclosure. I'm actually a change management uh, professional, but I think our work is overlapped and I'll share with you why. I, I connect, you know, working to bring inclusion into our organizations with change management and innovation. To me, there are some similar processes that make all three possible in our businesses. If you don't mind, I'd love to share with you, though, my diversity story, because my mission on earth is to be a bridge between disparate groups. I grew up in a dysfunctional, poverty, impoverished, I should say, home. My mom had a GED. My dad left when I was five. Um, it, was, it was one of those childhoods, if you can imagine. We were poor. We relied on government assistance for part of my childhood. And then fast forward as I grew up, um, school was my safe place. That was where I excelled, where I found people that loved me. Um, and through that journey and through many mentors and professional experiences, I went from being a first-generation college student to the first person ever and only in my family to get a master's degree. I now um, have a financial planner. I like new cars, so I get a new car every three years, right? Like a world away from how I grew up. Yet at the same time, my husband and I have chosen to live in a diverse, low-income neighborhood on the near east side of Indianapolis um, because I need and want people different than me to be around me, to be part of my community. And so my work as an executive coach, as a change management professional, as someone who now goes into businesses to help leaders understand what does it actually take to get people to change, I'm always bringing those stories with me. I understand that when we show up at work, we're showing up with our entire histories, our entire lives, no matter where we're at today. And that impacts how we show up and what kind of leaders we are. And so I strive to bring that compassion, that empathy, into our workplace because I've seen so many different sides of our society and I continue to, and I want to be a bridge that brings people together. So friends, that's why I'm here with you today. I wanna to share my gifts, my research with you and the hopes that it will help you as a DEI professional 
bring more of inclusion into our workplaces. I heard this awesome quote at a leadership summit, and it was from a futurist. And he says, if your business doesn't keep up, it's going to be irrelevant in five years. Doesn't mean it's going to go away. Doesn't mean your job's going to go away. Doesn't mean the institution's going to go away. It means your work, your organization will become irrelevant. Friends, I don't know about you, but I have zero desire to ever become irrelevant. I want to change. I want to keep up with the times. I want to do the important, impactful work that matters to this world. And I put your DEI inclusion work in that bucket. And I pulled these stats, and I'll connect the dots here in a second, but I pulled these stats from the World Economic Forum from an article in 2019 where they compiled some research. A Boston Consulting Group study found that companies with more diverse management teams have 19% higher revenues due to innovation. Friends, if you're listening to this, you're a pro in this field. I know you know this stuff intuitively. You may not have the numbers behind it. These are some of the numbers that I found for you. By 2025, 75% of the global workforce will be made up of millennials, and 74% of those millennials believe that their organization is more innovative when it has a culture of inclusion. And 47% of our millennials looking for jobs are looking for organizations that prioritize diversity and inclusion. A separate stat is research confirms that companies with more women in the C-suite are more profitable. And we still know there's a significant gender pay gap in our organizations, as well as a gap in the number of seats that we put women in, in corporate leadership. You all experience this every single day. When I read these stats, as a change management professional, what I hear is, hmm, we've got change coming that we need to make so that your organization can stay relevant. This is change, this is innovation. It's not just about the inclusion work. I wanna bring you guys some tools from the change management world that I think are gonna support you in equipping you to make a more inclusive and diverse workforce, to help those women get to the top of the C-suite, to get more women on your boards, to have higher revenue because you have more innovation, because you have more, more diversity on your staff. So it's not just an inclusion problem, it's an innovation and a change management pro problem. And when I talk about change, change management, innovation, even inclusion, I always see it from three different perspectives. One is there's individual change, right? Like individuals have to change their behaviors in order for us to have change, in order for us to have innovation, in order for us to have inclusion. Same at the corporate level. Organizations have to change in order for us to have change, to have innovation, to have inclusion, right? These are systems, structures, policies that make this happen. And then there's actually a kind of a meta level of change that happens, it's enterprise capability. So when it comes to change management, what this means is an organization is going to add on an entirely new skill set. It's going to pivot to an even bigger problem to solve that's tangential to their main business, yet significantly different. So this is, this is Ford saying, you know what, world? We are going to become experts in driverless transportation systems. We are going to become a transportation company. In 2020, they're really an automobile manufacturing company. They have their eye on a much bigger prize, which is how do we get driverless semis across the country to deliver goods? That's a logistics problem. That's an electricity problem. That's a technology problem. That is enterprise level change. 
most of my work is in the organizational and individual change. And that's what I want to share with you today. Because as my friends at ProSci say, organizations don't change, people do. So how do we get people to change? Well, we can't make anybody change, right? We're not in control of them. But we can make it more likely that they're going to be willing to change with us if we show up in more effective ways. When I think about your work as a DEI professional, it requires you to change, those around you to change, the company to change its policies and systems and structures. If all of that is happening, you know what else is gonna happen? Conflict. Conflict and change go together like peanut butter and jelly. There's just no way around it. And I hope that you have healthy conflict, which is um, a series of attributes that a, that a company can adopt, according to my friend uh, Patrick Lencioni, around how to debate in a healthy way, how to debate in a way that produces better ideas, not knocks down people or attacks people or creates artificial harmony, which is when everyone's nice to your face but says really awful things behind your back. So if we're going to have change, we have to know that conflict is also coming, right? Especially in inclusion work. It touches on the very essence of what makes us human. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to admit that most people don't bring their full humanity to work. So what do we do with that? With DEI work, you know, it, it feels like an either or endeavor to a lot of people, especially those currently in power, especially with those that hold a lot of privilege. From their perspective, it feels like, well, if this other group has more power, that means my power is going to be lessened versus this mentality that, that power can be a pie that gets bigger, not more slices to be sliced up among more people. And so inviting people to think about that. I also think about that perspective when it comes to love and compassion, too. I think the same rules apply. But because change is coming, conflict is coming, and it's because as humans, we have emotions, we have ownership, we have insecurities, we're too apathetic about things that we should care more about. We have different perspectives. As an inclusion expert, you know how hard it can be to help people see other people's, um, other people's experiences and perspectives and have empathy for that. And so this pro-trouble micro mindset, I think will make it more likely for you to be able to do that for yourself, for other people, and then invite other people to come together in new ways. When it comes to inclusion work, we often don't have the skills needed for change. I have a colleague who teaches very specific communication skills for some of these issues, right? Like when you're a woman and a man hits on you at work, which is an, um, far too common situation, Oftentimes we don't know how to react, so we say nothing. So then the bad behavior continues. How do we overcome that? That's a communication skill that we can learn. When you think about structural or organizational inclusion change, you know, oftentimes our plans, and this goes to any kind of business plan, my friends, but our plans simply lack clarity or they're too detailed or we really haven't validated the idea before we move forward. So we need to make sure that our plans have the right level of clarity, detail, process, results that we're hoping to get and create change readiness in our organization so that people can adapt to what's happening, to our goals and to make them happen. And I think too, you know, change and conflict go together because 
we oftentimes have expectations that go unstated until it's too late, until we realize our boundary has been violated or something has happened. As leaders, we don't take enough time to articulate expectations as a project unfolds. And so I'm just going to guess that that also happens with your DEI projects. I could be wrong here, my friends, but I'm just gonna guess that your plans often go off the rails or don't go according to plan because that's how plans go. And of course, as any change gets rolled out, there are just so many different obstacles that come in our way that we don't do a good enough job of uh, troubleshooting. Not that we have to prevent all obstacles, but we do need to at least have a game plan for when they do happen. I have a client of mine who calls them pre-mortems, right? How do you sit down and brainstorm about all the things that could go wrong so that you can have a game plan in place before they do go wrong? It's a really strong leadership skill. So let's talk about what is a pro-troublemaker. And before I talk about pro-troublemaking, I want to talk about troublemaking because my guess is this is the one that you're more familiar with. If you're anything like me or the workplaces that I work in, I'm guessing you're a bit more familiar with, with the troublemaker. This is a synonym for devil's advocate, pain in the butt, that person that you wish didn't show up for the staff meeting because they always derail it. A troublemaker is reactive to problems. They complain, but they don't offer solutions. They sound frustrated and they're me-focused. They have a pessimism known as negative Nancy or Debbie Downers, and my apologies to Debbies and Nancys listening in, but there's a pessimism that is just pervasive in their being. Troublemakers either break the rules or are the norm police, so they're going to hold you to rigid rules so that you can't do anything that's not the status quo. And sometimes these are the same people, so it's super confusing, right? They can be alienating or exhausting. And it's usually because they complain so much or they sound so selfish. You're like, oh, she's at it again. She's been bringing this up for six months. All right. Or they list the problems without, again, listing solutions. And troublemakers can be too controlling or too chaotic. And what that means is chaos is actually a way to hold the status quo. So if you're always needing one more meeting before you can make a decision, if you're always needing to bring in one more stakeholder before you can move forward, that is actually a version of creating chaos that stalls decision-making and stalls action. Or let's say you're allowed to do steps one, two, and three, and then all of a sudden your boss comes to you and says, nope, nope, not allowed. We've got to pull back from that project. That is a way to create chaos that stalls progress. And same with controlling, right? Like, no, you've got always has, you always have to get my approval before you move forward. Don't send out emails without me looking at those. That's a version of control that stops progress. The mindset that I want to invite you into, my friends, someone that makes it more likely that we can actually create change in our organizations is being a pro-troublemaker. And this is a series of attributes that I have compiled based on my research, um, based on all the things I've done wrong as an employee and trying to get people to change, and what are the more effective skills and attributes and word choices that help you actually connect with people during a change process versus creating that resentment, creating that disconnection, um, creating division when what you're seeking is unity and inclusion, right? So here's what I believe is a pro-troublemaker. Another word for it from my organizational psych friends is positive deviant. 
right? So pro troublemakers are proactive. They plan ahead. They think about what could go wrong. More importantly, they think about what could go right. They have optimism. My friend, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King says the arc of history bends towards justice. And I believe in that too. I think we all need that level of optimism to keep that big picture in mind, especially when the day is hard. Pro troublemakers are creative and curious. So they're gonna be innovative by nature because they're looking to, to connect old ideas in new ways. They're mission focused and joyful. They love what they do, they love their people. Pro troublemakers know that it is a blessing and a gift to be able to do the work that they're doing. And they keep their eye on that bigger prize. Why are we all in this together? They know the mission. They know what unites people. And that could be within your DEI team. That could be within the larger HR team or the larger strategy team, wherever you, your home is there, or even the larger company. But they're mission focused. Friends, you are doing work that takes long-term patience, long-term activities. And of course, you need the short-term wins to keep you going, but without staying connected to that mission and finding very tangible ways to feel emotionally connected to it, you're probably going to burn out. A pro troublemaker knows when to bend the rules and change them when needed. How do you look at maybe rules in a new way and see if there's another way to interpret them to get what you need now? Oftentimes that rule, that process, that system was set in place at a time when it didn't make sense or by a select few people. And now that it's been rolled out to the whole company or now that um, your company has a different culture, it just doesn't make sense. Pro troublemakers know how to make the case for a rule change by reinterpreting and bending those rules. And this takes a high level of political savvy. Pro troublemakers are attracting and passionate. They're the type of people you want to be around. A pro troublemaker, when she walks in that room and you're like, yes, I'm so glad she's contributing to this meeting. She always has the most amazing insights. You want to be around those type of people. And I hope people want to be around you because you are attracting, have charisma, you're passionate. Pro troublemakers know how to name the possibilities and adapt along the way. So what that means is, I think, you know, it's really easy to get into a meeting and everyone starts listing all the problems that are wrong with the topic at hand. Or then what also happens is people start naming solutions to a problem you haven't identified yet. Again, that creates chaos. Chaos stops change. Instead, a pro troublemaker is going to take the time to say, okay, what's the problem we're actually solving for? What are the possibilities for how we can solve that and a new goal if we need to adapt? And then third step is what are the solutions that we're going to move forward with? So a pro troublemaker knows that there is place for naming the problem, brainstorming solutions, and then identifying the, the I'm sorry, brainstorming possible solutions, and then naming the actual solutions, creating deadlines and accountability to actually moving that forward. Raise your hand, and even if you're driving, you can put one hand up. If you've ever attended one of those meetings where you made decisions, no homework came out of it, and then no one did any follow-up work, right? That's a waste of time. That's a waste of company time. Why do we do that to ourselves? We need more effective meetings. I think pro-troublemakers drive agendas that get the real work done, that get decisions made so things can move forward. Or if you need more time to brainstorm, they name it and say, guys, we need to brainstorm. We haven't come up with enough ideas yet. Or they say, guys, we need to pause. What we're working on is not working. 
we need to reconfigure this and adapt because what we thought would work just isn't. So we need to revisit this. And then pro troublemakers, again, with that adaptation, they are focused. They know that we can't do it all. We can't solve all of the world problems. We can't take on all of the issues at our company all of the time. We need to stay focused on the top three priorities. Our human brains aren't even capable of holding more than three goals in our brain at a time. This isn't Stephanie Krebin's jargon. This is Franklin Covey research. But the reality is we can only focus on so much. So if we give our teams, ourselves, five, seven, ten goals, we are decreasing the likelihood of success the more goals that we give ourselves. Stay focused on three things, do it well, and be successful. Pro troublemakers know how to stay focused because focus is one, it's going to change the world, and two, it's what actually gets projects to move forward. Friends, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to read through this list of pro troublemaker attributes. And if you have your notes and your pen in front of you, I want you to write down three elements of being a troublemaker that you're using and you want to get rid of. And then I want you to write down three attributes of the pro troublemaker that you want to do more of. So again, to be a troublemaker, reactive, complain, angry, me-focused, pessimistic, breaking the rules or holding too tight to the rules, alienating and exhausting, lists problems with no solutions, or you're too controlling or too chaotic. Which of those three do you need to own and write down and say, you know what, I do these some of the time and I wanna stop doing that because it's not effective. And friends, I could write down three too. I have my emotional triggers that sometimes I step into holding on to the norms too much as a way to get what I want. I know how to do that, unfortunately. I wanna break that habit. Now, on the pro troublemaker side, I wanna read this list. I want you to write down three of these that you are doing well and you want to strengthen. Being proactive, creative, curious, mission-focused and joyful, optimistic, bending the rules and changing them when needed, being attracting and passionate and um, charismatic, naming the possibilities and being focused and adaptable. I know you're already doing some of those well. If you were to do them even more effectively, what could be different in your organization? So write down three from each side. I invite you to pause as you do that. And after you write down all three, I want you to write down, if you were to strengthen those three, what would be different about your leadership style? I want to invite you to keep those top of mind as we move through the rest of this program. And now I want to switch directions just a little bit to help you understand at an unconscious level why some people don't ever seem to change or they don't want to change in the way that you think that they should. What's going on there? So unfortunately, there's not a simple answer as to why people won't change. There's so many different internal mechanisms that are going on within our own headspace that keeps us from changing. Even though we might tell you we want to change, we don't actually change our behavior. And let me just detail for you a few, and then I want to dig deeper into three specific tools that you can use moving forward starting today after you listen to this. 
So the number one, so we all have kind of these innate um, values and different experiences that create lenses on the world. And these create an affinity for or an aversion to change. And we're all different and we're all kind of on a spectrum. So the first one that I always point out for folks is your personality and behavioral style. So if any of you are familiar with Myers-Briggs, with the DISC behavioral assessment, with predictive index, with Enneagram, there's lots of great tools out there to give you self-awareness into your personality or behavioral style. And all of those styles come with a need for speed, a desire for change, or the lack thereof. So for example, on the DISC, DISC behavioral profile, um, DISC stands for your level of dominance, influence, stability, and conscientiousness. So my D friends are great at delegating. They're very results-focused. My I friends are very people-focused. They can be impulsive, um, but they love people. Think about your classic salesman um, and his, his um, levity for life and his jovality with other people. He's a high I style. My S friends are empathetic and wonderful listeners. They're the steady eddies of our culture. Um, a lot of my friends in HR possess the amazing skills of the S or steadiness style. And then, and then there's the C style, which is conscientiousness. So these folks are analytical, process-oriented. Um, they really focus on doing it right, doing it the best way the first time. None of these are good or bad. They're all useful at different points um, in a project or on a team. I'm a high I and D style, so high in influence and high in a level of dominance. So I can be direct, I can be too direct. Um, I love people, I come with a, a level of um, joy that is not found in everybody. Uh, just this morning I was sharing with a new friend of mine, he goes, yeah, this weather in February in Indiana always gets to me, the cloudiness, the, the lack of sunshine. And I said, well, Unfortunately, I was built with some internal sunshine here, so the weather doesn't really affect me. I'm sorry to share that with you, but it's just I kind of walk around with my own little sunshine, um, and that's just how I am. And so with an eye style, eyes can be impulsive. I can be impulsive. Friends, I love a good shiny object. I do. Like I tell folks, if you were to send me one of those glitter bomb things, I would love it. I also love metaphorical shiny objects. That's not how you run a successful business. I know that about myself. I know that that element of my personality drives me to want change faster than other styles, especially the S style, the steady style, right? Who's looking to create uh, balance in every area of their life. You want to bet I'm going to get on their nerves pretty quickly because of my desire for change, especially if we're teammates. And so keeping these types of differences in mind can help us all work together more effectively. We also all have an internal, what I call an internal biological clock that is basically a lens that we use to view the world that helps us determine how often we want change. And you're going to actually explore yours here in just a minute. But we have a clock that says, you know what, I'm going to stay at this job for 10 years. And other people have a clock that tells them, I'm looking for the next project. I'm looking for the next role every year. Not wrong, not bad, just different. And then again, our values determine how willing we are to change. I've got a lot of clients, they're Gen Xers, they've got kids in high school or um, in college. Their willingness to change jobs is pretty low, 
because of those college tuition bills for their kids. They need some financial stability to help their kids get through college. That makes all the sense in the world to me, right? But their values and their, their stage of life are what is keeping them from changing, even though they might want something else. So for my friends with values like stability, steadiness, safety, you are probably less likely to change as frequently as someone with values like freedom and flexibility and creativity. And we also, can, we also have to remember that we can't confuse a willingness to change with our um, willingness to accept risk. Those are two very different thought processes and they don't always go together. So folks who are willing to change often may or may not be risky. Same with folks who are risky, may or may not be willing to change often. So those, I think, on the surface seem like they should go together, but from a personality and values perspective, they don't always. So I invite you to consider those differences. And then there's competing commitments. This is a tool we're gonna dig into in a minute, but this is basically when our values get violated in the workplace and we don't know how to reconcile that. And honestly, most folks aren't aware and able to list their personal and professional values. So they don't even know when their values have been violated. It just kind of paralyzes them. And I'll share with you a story um, about how a gentleman using coaching was able to move through that. And then our current level of dissatisfaction. Friends, if people are not dissatisfied with the status quo, they are not going to change their behavior. The pain has to be greater than the status quo for them to change. It's almost universal. And so what do we do that? What do we do with that in the inclusion world when we're trying to help the folks who are already included in all the decisions? They already have the power and the privilege in our organizations. How do we help them be dissatisfied with the status quo? We can talk about that in a minute. So there are so many factors at play that that stop or speed up change for individuals. And so there is no one right answer as to how to get someone to change. You have to be willing and able to build your influence skills, which I believe is building the mindset of being a pro troublemaker and using these coaching tools that I want to share with you as a way to make it more likely that people will change because you're going to be able to connect with them on a really deep empathetic level because I'm going to show you how to help get to the heart of the matter as to what's going on with them. So here's the first one that I want to share with you. Here's the first tool that I want to dig in with you. This is called a meta program. This is a coaching tool that I, that I learned in my uh, coaching program when I got trained as a coach six years ago. Um, not many people train on it. I've heard Tony Robbins offer some training on it, but it's a little known tool. What a meta program is, is a way for our brain to make sense of the world. So at any one given point in time, our brains are processing two to five billion, with a B, billion bits of data. And, and it's everything from how the light comes into our eyes to the shades of uh, color on the carpet to the various smells in the room. If we were all together in the room, I would see each of your faces individually and my brain would be trying to process your body language as well as process getting these words out of my mouth. You get the idea. Two to five billion bits of data. Our brains, at a conscious level, we can't actually do anything with that information. So the meta program is a lens through which our brain views the world to make sense of it so it can kind of distill it down to the necessary information. The problem is, is that our meta program 
sees what it wants to see. It's reinforcing. And so um, kind of makes us stubborn, right? But it's, it, it's helpful in helping us make sense of the world. So the more awareness you have around it, then you can adapt around it. And there's at least a hundred different meta programs based on my research. This is the one that I think is most relevant to when we talk about change, getting people to change their behavior, helping them build awareness around that. So I'm going to invite you, I'm going to ask this question, and then I'm going to invite you to pause the recording and answer it for yourself. And it sounds awkward and it's awkward on purpose. So here's the question. What is the relationship between your most important goals this year and last year? So your answers are going to fall along a continuum, but I want to share with you three different areas in which people's answers typically fall. Um, and, and if you're not exactly clear, just make a best guess here. So here's the continuum. It goes from sameness. So people who like the same thing day in, day out routine, the opposite end of the spectrum is folks who love difference with change. And these are my folks I referenced earlier who are looking for the next job, the next responsibility every year, year and a half. So if your answer sounds something like this, my goals are the same as last year, you are more than likely in the sameness, sameness category. This is five to 10% of the North American population. You are dependable for follow through if the work remains stable. You prefer a routine job. You're not very adaptive to change. And you kind of operate on a 10 year stability clock. That's an internal biological clock I mentioned earlier. So you're thinking about switching jobs, the next move in your career every 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. It takes a high level of pain and dissatisfaction to get you to change. And friends, there is no judgment about any of these categories. Um, they're, again, not good, not bad. They are what they are. And I encourage you to increase your own self-awareness so that you can better manage yourself, but then also serve others. On the other end, if your goal statement, sound, if your answer sounds kind of like, I have a completely new goals, you're probably in the difference with change category. You love to break new ground. You're going to change just for change's sake, and you're going to force change to increase diversity. So as I share with a lot of my friends, um, I'm mostly in this category for most pieces of my life. I change out my shower curtain at home every year because I just want to look at a new shower curtain. I drive change for change's sake within my own business and with my colleagues and with my clients. Um, I can follow through and be dependent on to follow through, and so can you, if there are generating unique elements. So I'm doing something new for the first time, breaking new ground. Folks like this are kind of getting the itch to move every year, year and a half. This is 25% of North American population. If your goal sounds something like, my goals are similar to last year, but updated or changed in an incremental way, you're probably with the majority of North Americans, which is the sameness with development. So you're willing to change. You need some things to stay the same, but you're willing to evolve and change, especially if you understand the background and the context for it. You can be very adaptive and you can be dependent on to follow through 
with some variation, but you're going to ask for some stability as well. You're going to be looking for that next gig, that next project, that next promotion, three to seven years. And that's where 65% of North Americans are. So I'd encourage you to think about how does your need for speed for change drive your decision-making in your role? How does it impact the speed at which you want to work? Are you getting impatient? Well, maybe you love change more than your colleagues. So that says something about the culture you're in and whether or not it's a culture fit. Or maybe you feel frustrated that everything is changing all the time. Well, maybe that because that's you, maybe that's because you have a need for more stability than what the culture provides. Again, is it a good culture fit or can you have an impact leveraging the gifts of your sameness style? Not good or bad, just different. And that's a beautiful piece of it, but I want to encourage you to own your need for speed. It doesn't mean anyone's doing anything else wrong. You just have this internal drive that you need to recognize and maybe find a culture or a team where that jives with the work that's being done. So the next tool that I want to dig into is why people won't change, and it's because their resistance is greater than the pain they're feeling from the dissatisfaction. They don't understand the vision that you're working towards, and they don't, they don't know the first steps to complete that vision. So this is a classic psych psychological tool, um, and you can look up this equation if you're interested in digging into it more, but it's resistance to change is going to produce no change if it is greater than their level of dissatisfaction, their understanding of the vision of where you're actually headed with this project or with this assignment or with the company even or with your team. And then if there are no first steps to accomplishing that vision, people aren't going to move forward. And for my friends who like to create plans with plans with subplans to get from A to Z, oftentimes that overwhelms folks. All you need are the first three steps to get started. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here and I'm going to invite you to um, kind of answer the, I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to invite you to pause the recording, answer it, come back with me. I'm going to ask you another question as it relates to this equation, if you will, as to why people won't change. As I always say, if people aren't dissatisfied with the status quo and you're trying to get them to change and trying to get them to change, I need you to go bang your head against another brick wall because it's just not going to happen. I've worked with an entire accounting team who refused to take on more work from their case management team to make the case manager's lives a bit easier so that they could serve their clients better, the accounting team refused to take on that work because they weren't dissatisfied with it, right? Why, why would they want three more hours per client on their workload? They didn't, and they made that very clear, and they all got fired because they refused to keep the mission in mind. They refused to keep the people that needed the help the most in mind. They were only thinking of themselves. So they weren't dissatisfied. They were completely satisfied until a change was forced upon them, unfortunately. So here are the questions that I'm gonna ask you to dig into. I want you to think about a current project that you're working on in any area of your business. And write down what is the resistance to change that you're experiencing. 
Now, after you've articulated the resistance that you're experiencing, I want you to write down what do you know about how dissatisfied they are with the status quo, with what's currently happening in the business. Even put it on a scale of one to 10, one being they're, they're not dissatisfied at all and 10 being they're extremely upset with what's happening currently. They're frustrated, they're, um, they're mad even. What is their level of dissatisfaction with what's currently happening from one to 10? And what do you know about why they're dissatisfied? So write that down now. Next step, what is the vision for change that you are advocating for? And friends, for a vision, it needs to be based in positive language and it needs to be compelling. When you describe it, I need to be able to see a picture in my head. So for example, if your vision is, we don't want women leaving after they have, leaving our workplace after they have their child because they can't balance work and home life. That is not positive or compelling. So you need to state it in the positive. So we want a retention rate of 95% of those women who leave for maternity leave and come back and the 95% is measured at a year later. That's stating it in the positive and we're understanding what we're working towards versus what we're working against. So I'll give you a minute, write down a compelling positive vision, not what you don't want, but what do you want? And can you measure it? Even more impactful. Let's pause there. And then the next level, what are the first three, five steps that you all can take together to make this vision happen? Make it simple, make it easy, right? Let's do some interviews with women coming back from maternity leave. Let's do some interviews before they go on maternity leave to find out what they need. And then we can analyze that information. We don't have to have a plan today. But what are the first steps that you can take to make this vision a reality to overcome the dissatisfaction? I'll stop there. As you look at the list that you've created, right, these four different elements, the resistance, what are you hearing? What do you know about why they won't change to this new policy or this new behavior? Are they dissatisfied? What do you know, right? If it's less than a seven, it's probably not painful enough for them to change their behavior. And then be really honest with yourself. Is your vision compelling enough, clear enough? Do people want to get on board with it? Is it based in positive language? As human beings, that's what we need to engage with that vision, with that goal. And then what are clear first steps? Don't try to have it all figured out from the beginning. What are some small ways we can begin that will create small wins so that we feel victory, so that we feel like we're headed in the right direction? That is how you overcome resistance, is with the pain, a high level of pain of dissatisfaction, positive vision that people want to be a part of, and then the first steps to get us started. These are just based on how our brains work and the limitations that we have in terms of processing information and what we as human needs 
in order to move forward. The third tool, the final tool that I want to share with you all today is when our values get violated in the workplace, it creates competing commitments inside of us. It looks like resistance. So from the, our last tool, that was about resistance. This isn't about resistance. This is about an actual unconscious, unconscious limitation to move forward because we have a belief structure that is stopping us in our tracks. Friends, if you're really interested in digging into this tool, Harvard Business Review has a great little booklet out called On Change. And um, this, is, this is the research where, where I pulled this from. It's an unbelievably powerful, powerful coaching process. In order to do this with someone, you must have a high level of trust, psychological safety, and that person needs to be willing to um, uncover their own assumptions. So the process is actually relatively simple. You help the person by asking them a series of structured questions to uncover the assumption, right? What do you believe? What's stopping you? What's really going on here? Then you examine it. So as a coach, you ask powerful, open-ended questions to help them reconsider their beliefs from an, another perspective, right? What's really stopping you? You say you don't have time, yet I saw you leave last Friday at 3 o'clock. So... I would imagine that could have been some time to work on this, right? Like just help question what's holding them back. And then you help them question it, right? And look at these beliefs as not something that's inherent to them, but instead just a belief structure that may not be serving them right now. Here's a real life example to bring this to, bring this to life for you. Um, there was a gentleman who worked at a large organization and he was like, not the CEO, not a vice, vice president, but kind of at that director level, kind of that level three of the organization. He was a, an African-American man who had strong ties to his, his African-American community outside of work. It was a large part of his identity, his social structure, his family, his friends. It meant a lot to him. In his workplace, he worked with mostly white males. And he was asked to take on a really big project. And he kept stalling and he kept stalling and he kept hemming and hawing about why he wasn't progressing. And he went through this competing commitments process with his coach. And what he learned was that he wasn't moving forward unconsciously. And of course, he told himself all the normal excuses we all tell ourselves. Oh, I don't have time. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, they're not giving me the resources I need. Of course, I can't move forward. Or, oh, I need to start that in fourth quarter, not third quarter. These are all normal excuses that we tell ourselves to not, to not progress. But when he really uncovered his assumptions and realized what was going on, was that he unconsciously believed that if he were to be successful, he would move more strongly into the business leadership of his company that was pretty much all white males. And with that move, he would then be tearing himself away from his identity and from his personal and social community in the African-American culture. So you can see how that underlying tension was, was paralyzing him. Because, and he didn't even know he had it till he engaged in this process he had this underlying belief that more engagement at work meant less engagement with his family, with his community, with his identity. 
once he was able to explore that and reconcile it for himself, he was able to move forward. He was able to keep both of those, be more powerful at work, be more successful at work, and hold on to his identity as an African-American male, as a leader in his social community, and in the world, in the way that really resonated with him. Friends, we all have versions of this inside of us, these competing commitments, these value violations that hold us back, that take a lot of self-reflection to help us get past. It's not simply about procrastination. Sometimes it's not simply about insecurity, but our very identity is being questioned because of our work, and we need to find conscious ways to reconcile that. So four quick tips for you to use if you want to not fully dig into this competing commitments process, because I do believe it takes some training and some intentionality and some psychological safety, but to help you get to more of the heart of the matter on some, if, some issues and discover what's really going on here when someone keeps saying, I don't have time, I don't have time. Oh, I, you know, I'm avoiding that meeting because that other person won't put me on their calendar, whatever it is. I just... It's amazing to me the number of excuses us humans can come up with to avoid work. But here are four ways that you can help get to the heart of the matter a bit more faster to really uncover what's going on. Number one question, what's the best thing that could happen if we were successful? Number two, what's the worst thing that could happen if we fail? Right, too many of us go to worst case scenario that rarely ever happens. So let's, let's explore those fears and expose them for what they are and move forward anyway. Many of you may be familiar with a tried and true tool called why. <laughs> ask why five times. Every time you ask it, you're going to get a deeper and more real answer. Why is that important to you? Hmm. And you mentioned that. Why, why is that important to you? Most people don't take the time to examine those assumptions for themselves, so you're really going to be helping them. And my favorite question, if you were really being honest with yourself, what's really holding you back here? You've given me seven excuses as to why you can't get started. If you're being honest with yourself, what's really holding you back? That's when you're going to hear about the insecurity, maybe the problems at home that are holding them back, maybe a story that's impacting their belief system today. That's when you're going to hear the real answer. If you've taken the time to develop the trust and the connection with this person, and I believe that that gets built more effectively with that joy, with that compassion, with that proactivity of being a pro troublemaker. So my friends, my invitation to you today is to know that you have what it takes right now to create the change that you're seeking. I know that your work feels hard and it feels like you're in the trenches sometimes, just can't get your initiatives to go through. You feel like you don't have a voice at the table. You feel, or a seat at the table or a voice, right? Those are two separate things. You feel like no matter what you do, you just can't get your point across. And I know that you have what it takes. And I want to invite you into that pro troublemaker mindset where you can choose to do it from a place of optimism, um, from a place of, I'm going to be willing to bend the rules a little bit so that we can create new, better rules that actually work for an inclusive environment. You have what it takes to draw people into you, to have that charisma, to work on that vision together. 
And there's so many different ways to be a pro troublemaker, right? I have my own style. I kind of put myself out there. Um, I'm not the type of person that even asks for forgiveness after I've quote unquote done something wrong. I just say, you know what? I did what was best. I'm here to question the status quo. I'm here to challenge the way things have always been done. And that's my role in this world. And I know it. Right? I put myself out there. I have a more assertive style. That doesn't have to be your style. There are so many different ways to do this. Um, the one that I want to leave you with that is just a story that really touches my heart and points to the patience and tenacity that your inclusion programs can have, both formal and informal. So there was a gentleman who was in top leadership at a bank in the western part of the United States in the 80s. He was African-American. He was the only African-American who was on the leadership team at this bank in the 80s. Through his hiring processes, both intentional and consistent and with an open mind, he hired more diverse people, people of color, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people um, who are women, people who are um, of different minority groups, and he brought them into the bank. And through his coaching, he helped retain them at the bank. Because when they got frustrated, when they wanted to leave, when they didn't see that the culture was slowly changing, he helped them understand that their very presence was helping the culture change and that if they could stick together, they could, they could make a change in this organization. Fast forward 30 years when he retired, there were 3,500 diverse, beautiful souls in positions of leadership at this bank because of this gentleman. My friends, that is a level of persistence and tenacity that I wish I had. I'm not that kind of pro troublemaker. I'm guessing some of you on this line are. You have the tenacity. You can stay connected to that mission to make something grand like that happen. And so please know that there are just so many different ways to, to do this, to live this out for yourself, to make positive change in our organizations. And I invite you to find the way that makes sense for you. You know, if you want to be the transformational leader, the one that takes on the really big, hairy, audacious goals and makes change happen, awesome, do it. That's your gift to this world. Make it happen. You can be more of the influencer pro troublemaker. This is the person that relies on strategic communication plans, messaging, really understands what people need to hear and how they need to be held accountable to actually change. You can be the type of pro troublemaker that understands that Mediocre is okay, but we can be great. We need to keep high expectations in our organization and hold ourselves to them and hold those around you to those high expectations and, of course, including yourself. Or you can be that tipping point leader, the one that knows how to make unapologetic calls for change, knows how to concentrate resources and create focus in a way that drives organizational change, that reaches those DEI goals in a new way and in a fast pace because of your gifts of being able to harness emotion and communicate that change and concentrate those resources to mobilize people together. Friends, that's what I have for you on what it takes to be a pro troublemaker, to be that positive change agent that the world so desperately needs so that we can move towards this, this arc of justice, if you will, as Martin Luther King says, I mean, that, that, 
that really helps me stay connected to my mission. I don't know about you, but that helps me stay connected to my mission and to stay connected to the real work that needs to be done in our organizations. So with that, friends, I hope that we can stay connected. We'll have my website in the show notes and um, feel free to reach out if I can do anything for you or check out my programming if it resonates with you. Thank you, Stephanie, for that wonderful, inspirational podcast. I know I'm feeling more like a positive deviant myself. (laughs) If you would like to learn more about being a pro-troublemaker and creating change, feel free to visit stephaniekrevins.com. That's S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E-K-R-I-E-V-I-N-S.com. Or go old school and call Stephanie directly at 317-506-9668. More podcasts, are available um, at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast or you can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Anchor. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates in the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.